Authority and submission. Authority and submission. In our world today, you might as well have just hit the bleep button because those are pretty much swear words. What we're talking about today is not popular by any stretch of the imagination. The mere words, authority and submission, are viewed with a lot of suspicion, uh, maybe even in this room. Maybe it evokes negative reactions. Maybe you think about, uh, makes you think of the government and you think of, uh, I don't know, COVID lockdowns and mask mandates. Maybe it makes you think of a marriage with an abusive husband and a silent suffering wife. Maybe it makes you think of parenting, overly strict rules for kids that are going to rebel eventually anyway. Maybe in a church, authority and submission make you think of pastors who were bullies or manipulators and the poor sheep who followed them. We assume in our world, but it's also, it, it infects and affects the church too, we assume authority and submission are bad things. And my main desire this morning is for you to walk away with a deep love and appreciation for how beautiful and how good these things are. When I was in seminary, uh, I, was, uh, I took a preaching class, required to take a preaching class in seminary, uh, and I went to uh, TED's Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Chicago, and it's a, a broadly evangelical school, meaning uh, within our faculty, within our student body, there were diverse views uh, on things like uh, complementarianism, which is uh, the view that our church holds that the role of a husband is to lead his wife. The role of a pastor is reserved for men, these kind of things. Um, I only say that to, to say there, was a, there were several females in our preaching class because you were allowed to have, our school had a variety of views on these things, even though I'm a complementarian. Uh, and there was actually, very interestingly, a girl in my preaching class, a woman, who uh, was a complementarian. So she, like me, and like our church, believed firmly that the role of pastor is reserved for men. And she was not shy about this. She said, I think I'm called to women's ministry. I think I'm called to these things. I am not called to be a pastor. And uh, in our preaching class, uh, she, I remember she, so this is how this preaching class works in seminary. You give a sermon and your classmates, it's very awkward. You give your sermon and then your classmates give you feedback immediately. Uh, and you're like, oh, wow, this is weird. Uh, imagine, yeah, Jared preaches and he's like, okay, hey, what did everyone think? What did you hate about me today, you know? Um, so anyway, that's what happened. And this girl, Tori, gave a sermon and it was an excellent sermon. It was very, very good. She's a gifted preacher. And a guy in our class who's an egalitarian, which is another viewpoint, meaning uh, you believe the role of preaching is open, of pastoring is open to women and men. Uh, raised his hand, and he's, her name was Tori. He said, Tori, that sermon was so good, it makes me sad that you're a complementarian. And Tori looked at him with a big smile on her face and said, I'm not sad. I'm not sad that I'm a complementarian. And, and her smile and her response did something that he was absolutely not ready for. The assumption of our world and of the egalitarian position, and yeah, of many, is that authority and submission are inherently oppressive. They are swear words. 
and the smile on Tori's face and her bold statement that she loves submitting to godly authority, that she flourishes under it, uh, totally flipped that assumption on its head. He wasn't ready for that response. She made it clear. She finds authority that she is under, the the roles of authority that God has given uh, in the church, in the home, and other, other places we'll look at, to be a great, great blessing. So as we trace these twin themes, authority and submission, across the pages of the Bible, we will see they are not bad. What matters is how they are wielded. What matters is how they are wielded. A couple things I want to say here before we really dive in. First, I'm going to probably talk very fast this morning uh, because there's a lot of ground to cover and it will still be painfully abbreviated. So I could do literally a full hour on each of the individual things we're going to talk about. Please, please don't hesitate. Email, call, coffee, lunch, whatever, if you want to talk more about any of the things that we touch on today. I will say less than I could, and I'm afraid I might say less than I should. Because there's so much that needs to be said, so much nuance that needs to be baked in, especially in our present uh, cultural climate, uh, that I'm afraid I might say less than I should. So I pray, I I ask for grace in that, and if anything needs clarity, please talk with me, and and if you have feedback, anything like that, be welcome to receive it. Um, Second, a preliminary note, I'm going to put an absurd amount of Bible verses in front of you this morning. Uh, You may have noticed your handout packet is twice as thick as normal. I usually shoot for five pages tops. It's eight pages today, okay? It is a lot. There's a lot of Bible verses in there. I have a couple reasons for that. Uh, The first is I want you to see how consistent this theme is. It is not one little verse tucked away in some obscure book. It is literally across the whole Bible in unbelievable consistency. Second reason, there's a lot of Bible verses in your packet today. I want you to be biblically well-equipped. I want you to see uh, in in our world where these themes are very unpopular, I want you to see exactly what the Bible says. I want you to be very clear on that. I hope you keep this packet, take it home, so you can go back and look and say, okay, what, what does the Bible say about my submission to the government? What is, uh, is, if I'm a, a woman, what is a wife, what does the Bible say about my submission to the husband? If I'm, if I'm a child, what does my, the Bible say about my submission to my parents or my exercise of, of those authorities, if you're on the flip side? Uh, I want you to be biblically well-equipped. And the third, most important reason there are a million Bible verses in your packet this morning is because the Bible is the authority. The Bible is the authority. You should not be here to hear my opinions about authority and submission. That would be dumb and a waste of all of our time. But if we together are going to look at what the Bible says about authority and submission, that is absolutely worth our time. So it's an application already of what we're going to see, that uh, God is the supreme authority. His word is our supreme authority as it is breathed out by him. So we need to see how, uh, he, how he has woven these themes of authority and submission into our world and into his word. So let's start where the Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1. Here we see that authority and submission are woven into the very fabric of creation. They are woven into creation. Put this uh, pretty little chart here for you, uh, which is just a summary of Genesis 1. And it shows, what I'm trying to show in the chart, is how 
the order of Genesis 1, the order of creation, works its way up by degrees of authority. So the days 1 through 3, God makes these kind of these various kingdoms, day and night, waters, land. And then days 4, 5, and 6 fit right on top of them. It fits right on top of them. Day 1 corresponds with day 4. Day 2 with day 5. Day 3 with day 6. There's this beautiful symmetry. Uh, some have referred to that as form and fill. Uh, days 1 through 3 are the form. Days 4, 5, and 6 are the fill. I think that's good, but I think it's actually missing something that we need to say because it's more than just form and fill. It is kingdom and these kind of mini kings. Uh, the reason I use that language is Genesis 1:16, the very first uh, example of uh, a mini king. says, and God made the two great lights, the sun and the moon, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. So they, each of these kind of day four, five, and six uh, little mini kings rule over their mini kingdom. There's a structure of authority here. And that pattern continues with this little addendum on day six where man is created. And God tells him, Genesis 1.26, have dominion. That's authority. Have dominion over all the stuff that I just made. And he goes through all three of the three kingdoms that he and the many kings that he that have just been created there's a structure of authority so man is placed to rule as the king over these various kingdoms of God's creation a quick application this is why I tell my kids they are the boss of our dog it's good for them to know this this is the 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 authority structure of creation so sometimes if, if I have to discipline my kids or something like that, I, or they, they're defiant in some way, believe it or not, my kids sometimes are defiant, unbelievable. And I tell them, Daddy is the boss of you. You need to listen to Daddy. But I also ask them, who are you the boss of? And they know the answer. Our dog's name is Kodiak, but Kodiak's difficult to say, so they say Bubba. Uh, they say, I'm the boss of Bubba. And I'm like, that's right. You are the boss of Bubba. So they, uh, they have dominion. God has given humanity dominion over his creation. And then day seven, we get to the top of the pyramid, the king of kings. We see God rules everything. Day seven is God's day. That's where he rests. Day seven is God's because he is the one in ultimate authority over everything. Uh, But then we get to Genesis chapter two, and we actually find there is a relationship of authority and submission Uh, within the the two kinds of humans God has made. He has made male and female. He did not make one kind of human. He made two, male and female, husband and wife. Genesis 127 is very clear. They are both made in the image of God. They are both equal, uh, equally worthy of respect, honor, equally valuable. But they are different. Men and women are different. So in Genesis chapter 2, we, we get this kind of the, the, the first uh, glimpses of what the, the nature of their relationship is intended to be. The husband is called the head. Well, that, that's actually language from Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, but the wife is called the helper. Eve is called the helper. Uh, this is important. We understand what that means. The Hebrew word there for helper is azer. And this is incredibly important to know. Azer does not mean anything like inferiority. It does not mean she is less than or inferior to the man in any way whatsoever. How do I know that? Well, the word azer is used to describe God himself like 10 times in the Old Testament. So it is not the case 
that husbands are supposed to, you know, have authority. They're like God. And the, the wives, they're, you know, they're not like God. That is wrong. They both image God, but in unique ways. Men are called to a godly role. Women are called to a godly role in their marriage. The man is the head and the woman is the helper. We'll talk more about that when we get to the New Testament, what that means for husbands and wives to live in authority and submission. The Bible has a lot to say. But three quick takeaways as we've, we've seen here, authority and submission woven into creation. First takeaway, authority and submission are not arbitrary. They're not arbitrary. They're not culturally created. They reflect the order of creation itself. It's not just the case that, hey, guys, we live in the South. Here's how things work in the South. The husband's the leader of the home or whatever. You know, that's, that's why we do it this way. No, that's not why we do it. I don't care what Southern culture says about marriage relationships or anything like that. Uh, I care what the Bible says, and the Bible gives us that picture. This is not arbitrary. It is woven into the very world God has created. Authority and submission are good things. Oh, that's me jumping ahead to the second takeaway. They're good things. This is before the fall. What we've looked at so far, we have not looked at a single verse outside of the, or after the fall of man, and authority and submission has been everywhere. So authority and submission are good things. Everyone flourishes when authority and submission work how they are supposed to. And both head and helper are words that describe what God does, so they, neither of them can be bad, no matter what our, our, our instinct might be or our cultural pressures may say. And the third, most important takeaway we're going to see again and again and again and again and again today is God is the top of the authority pyramid. Everything submits to him. Every kind of authority we're going to look at today is a borrowed authority. It is a deputized authority, authority that must submit to the ultimate authority. So many of you know I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. This is Denethor in Lord of the Rings. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just zone out for the next 10 seconds. Denethor is the steward of Gondor. His job is to reign and rule and have authority, but as soon as the king shows up, his job is to step aside. His job is to get out of the way because the king is here. Similarly, the, the, the most terrifying words a babysitter can say is wait till your parents get home. Because a babysitter has borrowed authority from the parents. They say the parents are the authority that God has placed in your life. Therefore, when they come home, that's when you might be in trouble. In the same way, everyone ultimately submits to God. He's the top of the pyramid. But that's not how things go. It's how things are meant to be, but that's not how they go. In the fall, we find the complete reversal, the complete reversal of authority and submission. So how does the fall happen? It starts with the serpent, which is explicitly described, Genesis 3, as a beast of the field. Why does it say that? That's weird. We know it's Satan pretending to be a snake. Why call it a beast of the field? What's the point? The point is, remember the chart. This is lower than humanity. The snake is supposed to be under their authority. It is a beast of the field, and despite that reality, the snake convinces the woman, and she convinces her husband to sin against God. Do you see that? It is a complete reversal of every authority relationship that God has made. 
Everything is flipped. God is the ultimate authority. Adam's in authority over Eve. They're both over the beasts of the field, but the chart is turned upside down. Every authority and submission relationship is flipped in the fall of man. So that's our first takeaway. It is totally flipped. The second takeaway from this section is that Adam's authority means he bears primary responsibility. His authority, God put him as the head and Eve as the helper, means he bears primary responsibility. I've heard John Piper say, God knocks on the man's door first. That's a sobering reality, men. That's a very sobering truth. Even though Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam, God starts his rebuke with Adam. Genesis 3.9, he calls to the man and says, where are you? And if you look at your Bibles, if you have it, the, the curse God gives talks much more about Adam, talks much longer about Adam than it talks about Eve. They both get cursed as a result, but Adam bears primary responsibility. So husbands in the room, Spider-Man's uncle was right. With great power or authority comes great responsibility. You are the leader in your marriage. So if there's a problem in your marriage, God starts with you. That's a sobering thought. Next takeaway. The sins Adam and Eve will be prone to are related to their authority and submission relationship. We see that in Genesis 3.16. It says, the woman's desire will be contrary to her husband's. In other words, she is going to subvert rather than submit. She's going to subvert her husband's authority. She'll want to manipulate and rebel instead of be his helper. That's the sinful heart she has. And Adam, the man who's supposed to lead her, will rule over her. I think in, in context there, it's clearly saying his authority will become abusive. It will maybe neglectful. It will become harsh. It will be a bad authority. So just as the fall reversed authority and submission and how it occurred, the reality of sin in the world reverses authority and submission uh, as they play themselves out in the world. The chart is just flipped upside down and it's chaos everywhere. But that's not the end. Because as we will see, even though the fall flipped the chart upside down, in the history of Israel, our next section, authority and submission continue to exist and they continue to be really, really good. And we'll look at that in two ways in the Old Testament here, in kingship and in parenting. So uh, Israel's history is messy. Uh, the fancy theological word for that is understatement. Uh, Israel's history is terrible. Things go really, really bad. But there are also good times. And the good times come when there's a good king. When there's a good king, Israel flourishes. Look at 2 Samuel 23. I cannot think, I know we're going to look at a million verses today. This might be the most important verse in the Bible about understanding good authority. 2 Samuel 23. This is David saying this. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, that's David. When one, when one rules justly over men, Ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, 
like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Do you see how beautiful that picture is? That is an image of unbelievable flourishing, of unbelievable bounty, because the king is good. That is a good authority. He is like dawn breaking on his people, like rain and sun like falling down and making things grow and flourish. It is a beautiful image. And it's only possible when the king rules justly. And he tells us exactly what it means to rule justly. It means ruling in the fear of God. Ruling in the fear of God. The best authorities in the world are those that know they are under authority. They are answerable to a higher authority. They fear God. And how did Israel's good kings do that? How did they fear God? Well, they did what Deuteronomy 17 told them to do. I won't read it for you, but this is another important passage to understand what it meant to be a good king in Israel. This is the king's Bible reading plan. This is what he's supposed to do. It says, when he sits on his throne, that's his first day in office. When he sits down on his throne, first day in office, first day as king, what is he supposed to do? He writes out a copy of the law of God. He writes out a copy of the Bible. To rule well, he must know he is under authority. So whatever authority relationships you are in, brothers and sisters, if you want to be a good authority, Know your Bible. Know your Bible. It starts right there. That's what the kings of Israel were commanded to do. The other uh, authority and submission relationship we're going to look at in the history of Israel is parenting. Parenting. I didn't mean to turn the page there. Parents and children. So uh, the focus, again, is that good authority points to God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a famous verse. It's called, known as the Shema. It's probably one of the most important verses for Israel. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's some good theology right there. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's really important. These words I command you shall be on your heart. Great. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. This is the duty prescribed for Israelite parents. Teach your kids God's commands. It's very clear. All this, not, almost like highfalutin, but this exalted theology. And it says, teach it to your kids. Teach your kids God's word. And kids get their own commandment in Exodus 20, one of the ten commandments no less. Think about that. There's only 10 of the 10 commandments. You guys are learning a lot today, huh? 10, 10 commandments. Wow, this guy knows his stuff. And one of them is for kids. That's mind-blowing. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, Paul, we'll see this a little bit later. Paul will, will look at this command and point out this command is one of the few that comes with a promise. It's very clear. If you honor your parents, kids, and there's kids in the room, listen up. If you honor your parents, life's going to be good. That's what the Bible says. Life will be good. Generally speaking, all things being equal, life will be really good if you honor your parents. 
God will honor that and you will be blessed. That's the pattern God has woven into creation. Submit to authority and stuff goes well for you. Book of Proverbs makes this same point. Proverbs tremendously important for parenting kids. I'll just read one verse, Proverbs 13. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. It's really, really good, kids. It's really, really good to be under good authority. You will be blessed by submitting to good authority. We'll get to more parenting government stuff in the New Testament, but as we've kind of seen through these two here, kingship and parenting in the history of Israel, just a few takeaways, very simple. God does not throw out authority after the fall. If it were the case that God got rid of authority, okay, that didn't go well, let's get rid of it, then we wouldn't have to live in these relationships of authority and submission we're going to look at. But God very clearly doesn't throw them out. When authority fears God, it leads to blessing for those under it. This is why I started with that story of my friend Tori in seminary. She was blessed joyfully. You should have seen the smile on her face. She was blessed to live under her husband's authority because it was a good authority and under her pastor's authority because it was a good authority. She was flourishing because their authority was faithful and feared God. But, as I've already said, and will continue to say, for authority to be good, it must know it is under and answerable to God's authority. This is crucial. Every single kind of authority we will look at today, not a single one of them, is a blank check. God does not say, hey, parents, you know, husbands, bosses, I want you guys in charge you're in charge. Do a good job. No. God tells you exactly how you are to exercise your authority. He's very, very clear. We're going to look at those verses. He has commands for how your authority is supposed to look in your marriage, in your parenting, in your workplace. If God has you in a position of authority, you don't get to decide how to exercise that authority. You submit to God's authority. You answer to him. Next, how are we doing on time? We're okay. Next, we come to the peak of authority, and that's Jesus himself. And this is awesome, because Jesus redeems all the various kinds of authority and submission that have gone wrong since the fall. We see that first uh, and, and foundationally with the absolute authority of God in Christ. So we see that in Christ's power and in his word. So the authority of his word, Matthew chapter 7, is very clear. He is the authority God has when God speaks. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, this is the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For, why were they amazed? He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He was speaking like God speaks. If Jared gets up to this pulpit in an hour and starts giving you his opinions, you shouldn't listen to him. Jared's authority is derived, it's borrowed from the word of God that he opens for us. Jesus' ideas are God's word. They come with his authority. We also see his authority as God in his power. When I think of this, when the demons meet him, they have to beg him. They have to beg him to do anything. They can't flee away from him until he says go. They have to beg, let us go into the pigs, please, please, please. And he says one word, 
And they have no option but to obey. He has perfect, complete authority, the authority of God. But he also has the authority of man over creation. Now, we, we don't have time to go through all the various uh, ways this manifests itself in Christ. But think about the fact Jesus speaks a word to disease-causing bacteria, and they're cleansed. They're gone. He speaks a word to a fig tree, and it withers. Now, we might look at that and be like, that's God's authority. And yes, there's a sense. God is the ultimate authority. He is the authority over creation, too. But remember the chart. Man has authority over creation. We are called to exercise dominion, to rule over creation. And we see that in Jesus' life. He is exercising authority over creation as a man. Next, probably most famously, we'll come back to this verse in a bit. Jesus is the perfect husband who loves and leads his bride by dying for her. He is the model for all husbands. See that in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus is the perfect husband. That's a sweet word to widows, to those wrestling with an unwanted singleness, to know Jesus is your husband and he is the best husband you could ever have. This whole section in Ephesians is, is a reflection of the kind of husband that he is and it is, it is authority that his people flourish under. and It's beautiful and it's good. Jesus is also the good king ruling over his people. That's Isaiah chapter 9, I won't read it for you. I won't read the whole thing, just in the interest of time. But it talks about, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's a beautiful, flourishing authority under this king, Jesus. But it's not just authority we see in Jesus. We see submission too. In his incarnation, he submits to the will of his heavenly father. He makes this very, very clear. John 12, he doesn't speak on his own authority. He speaks as the father has given him to speak. And finally, he rules his church in perfect authority. Colossians chapter 1. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We're going to look next in a minute at the authority of pastors over congregations, but Jesus is the ultimate shepherd, the ultimate authority in his church what I want you to see now is this glorious, beautiful reality that Jesus redeems, reestablishes, displays all these relationships of authority and submission that we've talked about perfectly in the best, most ultimate ways. So he doesn't come to destroy authority and submission. They're good, so he redeems them, and he displays the goodness of both authority and submission. He doesn't say, ooh, submission, nah, I'm not really into that. I'm not going to do that. It sounds like I don't really want to do that. He's like, no, no, no. God in the Old Testament's a helper. Submission's a beautiful, godly thing. I also have submission in my relationship to my Father. That's the model. Christ is the perfect authority. And we move now to what will take the majority of our time, how we enact authority and submission in our own lives today as Christ's church. First, I'm going to talk about the authority of pastors and the congregations that submit to them. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to just, I'm not going to uh, read all the verses. I'm going to read my summary takeaways and then kind of point you to the verses that I'm getting them from, for just for this section. So uh, first, a pastor's authority, like all authority, is derived. It is borrowed from God, it is under God. So pastors can't get 
creative, as I've already said, they must preach the word. That's 2 Timothy chapter 4. If someone stands at this pulpit with an open Bible and they say what God says, you better listen. God is speaking through his word. You better listen if they're saying what the Bible says. It is a word with authority, but I put Acts 17 in your notes there. Be like the Bereans. Famously, the Bereans, Paul gets there and they look at their Bibles as he's preaching to them and they're like, is that really what it's saying? Are these things so? So no matter who stands at this pulpit, weigh our words in the scales of the scriptures. We are under authority. So weigh our words in the scales of the scriptures. You must submit to the word, but you also must make sure that your teachers are giving you the word. Which brings us to our next takeaway. As I've alluded to, pastors are merely under shepherds who answer to the chief shepherd. The pastorate is a dangerous job. To speak of eternal things with authority should make men quake and tremble. The Bible is abundantly clear about this. James says those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Hebrews says leaders will give an account for the souls in their care. But it's not all bad. Peter promises a crown for those who are faithful. But because God has given authority to pastors, to elders, those words mean the same thing in the Bible, the normal posture should be submission. Yes, make sure those who open the word are not preaching heresy, but don't be a heresy hammer where everything looks like the nail of false teaching. If you listen to sermons, just wait. Oh, I'm not quite, oh, did he say that quite right? You know, like, if you're just like on the edge of your seat looking for something to correct, you're not submitting to authority. But there is an important question. What do you do when a pastor is in error? I'll just give you two very, very brief uh, things. First, if someone is in error, preach false doctrine, or an elder gives poor counsel or whatever, uh, first, refer him to the higher authority. Refer him to the higher authority. Show him the scriptures and correct him as needed. Say, this is what the Bible says. Here's what you said. Here's how they're different. Refer him to the higher authority. And then second, trust the higher authority. If a pastor is in error, maybe he wounds his flock with unfaithful words or, or whatever, he will answer to God. Trust that. There is an earthly kind of approximation of justice we should pursue, but we never, ever want that to get in the way of saying, if no matter what, maybe I'm wrong or right, he will give an account to God. I can trust in that. All right, our fourth takeaway is we think about the authority of pastors. I couldn't figure out where else to put this, but it needs to be said, the office of pastor is reserved for men. The Bible's very, very clear about this. It doesn't say, oh, men are smarter, therefore they're the pastors. No, <laughs> My wife is smarter than me. You guys need to know that. My wife is smarter than me. She got better grades. But it's very clear, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and Paul is talking about the church here. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, not some submissiveness, all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve and then I'm actually skipping a whole other chapter here to point out in this whole section. He's saying, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, this is Paul saying to Timothy, 
If I'm not there, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, Paul is not saying, Timothy, there's a big problem in your church. I'm just, I'm making this point because this is what egalitarians will say, people who disagree with our church's view that the role of uh, pastors is reserved for men. They will say something like, uh, there was a unique situation in Timothy's church in Ephesus, and so Paul had to say that. Paul does not say, oh, man, it's really not working with the men being the pastors. Let's, let's try, uh, or with the women being pastors, whatever. Let's, let's try having only the men. Let's tell the women just to be quiet. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying this is a unique issue. He actually goes back to the order of creation that we talked about. He points to the chart. says Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's very, very clear. Again, that does not mean women are never gifted or able to preach and teach, but that does mean there are contexts and roles in which that is inappropriate. Uh, But next, that's not the only kind of authority that exists in the church. There's also a very real sense in which all church members are called to submit to one another. Now, I wish I could do a whole tech on this, but it's going to be 30 seconds. But part of what it means to be members in a church together is we see that we have authority in each other's lives. We have a membership directory. We've, we gave out, I think it was last Sunday, right? I wasn't here. Yes, last Sunday. Thanks, Jared. Uh, and I'm going to be giving them out today too. Those are the people that you have covenanted together with and said, you have authority in my life. If, I'm, if I need correction, if I need rebuke, if I need encouragement, you have the authority to give it to me. That's what it means to be in a church together. This is why the church discipline passes. Matthew 18 talks about telling it to the whole church. If someone needs to repent, they need their brothers and sisters who have authority in their life correcting them. We submit to one another. All right, I know I'm talking fast, but I, I really want to leave time for Q&A, and I'm, hoping we'll, I'm, I'm hopeful we'll get there. Next major area, husbands and wives. This is different than pastors in churches, uh, of how I just did pastors in churches. I'm not just going to read the takeaways. I'm going to read straight through all the passages the Bible says about this. I know I'm like, we're in a rush, interest of time. I really, really want you guys to see how clear, how explicit, and how uh, unchanging the Bible is in this respect. Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, hopefully that's a non-negotiable for everyone in the room. The church should submit to Christ, yes? As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. However, it's the end of the, the, the section there. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if you do not obey, even if some, your husbands, do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Colossians 3, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Okay. First takeaway. Wives are commanded to submit to their own husbands, not all men. 
They're commanded to submit to their own husbands, not all men in general. The Bible is very clear. Ephesians says it. First Peter says it. Your own husbands. They go out of their way to say something that may have been implied anyway, but the point is there is a uniqueness to the marriage relationship that does not apply outside of it. And women, I hope that's actually very encouraging. Because uh, you are fortunate enough today, it's not always been the case historically, I think it's a good thing, you are fortunate enough today to have some kind of role in choosing what husband you submit to. If a man gets down on one knee and asks you to marry him, and you think he will wield the authority of a husband with harshness, with anger, with brutality, I don't want to submit to it, say no. Pretty simple. You get to play a role in that. Second takeaway, just as in Genesis chapter 1, male and female are equal. I could make this point a million times, but it's very important. I hope Because our culture thinks if roles are different, if authority and submission are different, then there, there must be a value difference. There must be an ontology is the fancy word. There must be something inherent, that, and some kind of inherent inferiority or superiority. And the Bible's like, nope, not at all. They are both heirs of the grace of life. It's not like men get super salvation and women get, you know, hopefully get in. They are both heirs of the grace of life. So any authority that is harsh or cruel, any submission that is manipulative or rebellious is a denial of men and women's, husbands and wives, equality. Uh, Third takeaway, I won't belabor this, but public service announcement to the men. God has no interest in answering your prayers if you are if you do not honor and understand your wife. Pretty simple. Fourth, just like pastors answer to a higher authority, just like every authority answers to a high authority, husbands do too. Wives are told to submit in the Lord, which means really two things. First, it's a recognition that the Lord has put this relationship of authority and submission into existence. It was his idea. And second, it means God is the ultimate authority in their marriage. They submit in the Lord. So if the husband leads his wife to sin, leads her to something contrary to God's will, she should not submit to his authority because God's authority trumps her husband's. Ten times out of ten, she says no. She is unsubmissive if her husband's authority leads her in something that contradicts God's authority. Obviously, again, I could say much more. If you have Q&A on that, you're welcome to put it there. If you just want to talk one-on-one, I'm happy to do that. The hard part about this is I'm covering so much ground that I cannot give the nuance that is needed. So, again, I ask for grace in that, and if you need clarity, just ask. All right, next. New Testament talks about masters and bond servants. Uh, I think we can pretty naturally apply this today to relationships between bosses and employees. Uh, This time I won't read the passages. You can read them on your own time. I'll give you the major takeaways. First, workers are to obey and serve their bosses as they would obey and serve God, for God sees them and will reward them. I hope you're seeing consistency here. This is God has placed authority, so there's blessing under by submitting to it. Second takeaway, workers are to obey and serve bosses who don't deserve it. That might be surprising. If your boss doesn't deserve it, it still says obey. That's 1 Peter 2. The point is, that's what Christ did. Jesus submitted to bad authority. He suffered unjustly, and yet he 
submitted to it. The posture should be receptivity and not rebellion. Third, bosses should exercise authority with the conscious knowledge they have a fundamental equality with their workers and will answer to God's authority in the end. This should be familiar. Everyone is equal. Masters and slaves, which is a far more drastic difference socioeconomically, uh, and especially in the day when this was written, than a boss and employee today, they're saying, hey, guys, you're going to the same heaven. You have the same Lord. You are equal. Don't get all bogged down in the relationship here. All right, next, we're going to spend a minute on this, governments and citizens. Uh, The reason I'm going to spend a minute on this is because you will probably like this one the least. I know we are in America. I know we are in Texas. I'm aware of these facts. We live in a country and a state where we sing songs about and celebrate rebellion. My wife had a dog growing up. She grew up in Texas. His name was Rebel because Texans love rebellion. I need, to, I need to say this very, very clearly. Be careful. Rebellion is not a biblical virtue by any stretch of the imagination. Rebellion is not a biblical virtue. I don't care if American and especially Texas history celebrates rebellion. The rebel spirit is not the Holy Spirit. The Bible commands you To obey your government. Do not mess with Romans chapter 13. I'm going to read it for you because you need to hear this. Romans 13. Let some people, oh wait, no, that's not what it says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there are some authorities not from God. Not what it says. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, whether his name is Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And those who resist will incur judgment. Do not mess with Romans chapter 13. It is very clear, brothers and sisters. Peter says the same thing. Both of them lived in a far worse context than we do. They lived under the Roman Empire. If you think you've got it bad in America so you can just disobey, I hate the government, I'm going to do what I want, try living in first century Roman society. It was literally a pagan government. It was paganism. The emperor was supposed to be worshipped. Christians were sometimes hunted And the Bible says, obey the governing authorities. Now I hammer on that point because everyone likes to jump to the exceptions. And they exist. There are exceptions. We're going to talk about them, but they are rare. Everyone reads Romans 13 and says, well, yeah, but. And we don't actually listen to what it says. And what's shocking to me is that as a common sentiment among people who otherwise are all in on authority and submission as the Bible teaches about it. Parents who believe in disciplining their children. Husbands and wives who believe in complementarianism, but hate obeying the government. We say, no, 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 not that one. When the logic's the same. God has placed the authority, there's blessing in submitting to it. It's very simple. 
There are exceptions, though. Whenever the government's authority contradicts God's authority, God wins that fight. Just like the apostles in Acts chapter 5, they were told to shut up about Jesus, and they said, cool idea, we respect you, but no, God said we can't do that. We're not going to obey man, we're going to obey God, because man's authority is contradicting God's authority. But I think even in that, it's amazing. Even biblical disobedience is respectful. They're not like, oh man, those Jewish leaders, those governments, I hate them so much. They're like, we need to submit to God's authority, not man's. They're respectful even in their disobedience. There's nothing like rebellion there. And that applies to all submission and authority. Disobedience must still be respectful. Oh, wow, 9.50. Okay. We've already touched on this. Uh, Parents and kids, I'll be quick uh, because we've talked about it briefly. Uh, Pretty clear. Obedience is the command for kids. Gentleness is the command for parents. And again, kids submit to the Lord first and foremost and then to their parents. We see in the Bible this uh, for parenting and uh, for parents and for children. I'll start with parents. There is this authority that is to be exercised with both sternness and with intimacy. So there's a a relationship of respect that should exist, but also of of tenderness and love. So uh, some of you aren't going to like this, and that's okay, because this is 100% cultural. Not 100%, mostly cultural. I hate being called sir. I hate being called sir. It feels very cold and distant to me. I tell my kids to call other people sir because I know we're in the South, and it's proper and it's good and all these kind of things. And I want to honor that. But when I tell my kids to do something, I don't want them to say, yes, sir. I, say, I want them to say, yes, daddy. Because they need to submit. They need to say yes. But I want them to, to say it knowing that I love them more than anyone in the world. And there's no one in the world that they should want to submit to more than the one who loves them the most. God in his sovereignty has put parents over children as those who should love them the most and that should, be, that should be just a joyful, blessing, flourishing submission from kids. Again, I, if you don't agree with me, I, want my, I don't like my kids saying yes, sir, to me. That's fine. That's a, a minor detail. Uh, but I think I say that to say we should use language that reflects this reality of authority and submission with our kids. It's really helpful uh, to have language that reflects the way the Bible talks about these things, to coach your kids in that. All right, finally, the end of the theme, eternity. Two things happen in eternity. First, God's ultimate authority is reestablished. Everything is made new. No more sin. No more rebellion. He is on the throne. Second, all those other relationships of of authority and submission end. They're gone. We see that marriage ends. There will be no marriage in heaven. Now I'm totally lost in my notes. That's okay. Here we go. Marriage ends in heaven. And I think that's, that should be tremendously encouraging because, as we've said, authority and submission are good, beautiful things, but it is best when you submit to good authority, and it's really brutal when you submit to bad authority. Wives, no abuse and neglect. Citizens, no oppression from governments. Children, no harsh, brutal parents. And one day, those relationships of authority and submission will end, they will not exist, and all those in Christ will submit to the most beautiful, good authority you could ever imagine forever. 
Let me briefly just close. I'll run through these applications. I think it's very important. I won't belabor this first one. God is at the top of every authority. You've seen that a million times. Second, not all relationships of authority and equal look the same. They don't all have the same shape. I hope that's clear because the verbs, the commands that are given for governments and citizens and wives and husbands and children and parents and, all, and pastors and congregations, they're different. He doesn't use the exact same words every time. They, the, the way submission and authority look can differ. So there are two main categories. There are authorities of coercion where force is used, like the sword. It says the government bears the sword. That's biblical language. The rod. So parents talks about parents disciplining children. Authorities of coercion where you can kind of force submission. A boss's authority is like that too. But even in that, you see there's differences, right? Like, like a, a, a boss can't use a sword to convince their employees to obey. They can dock your pay. They can, uh, you know, promote you if you do well. But the authority is not, the, the coercion is not used the same. And then there's authorities of counsel where the posture of submission must be exercised, but force, coercion, is absolutely inappropriate. Often it goes completely against uh, the way that submission and authority are supposed to work. So a husband who uses a sword, to use a ridiculous example, in his marriage is a horrible husband. The government's authority wields a sword. A husband's authority does not wield a sword. It actually dies. It is the complete opposite. Not the complete opposite. It's a different kind of authority. A pastor's authority is like that too. Uh, third application, authority and submission are beautiful, good, godly things we should cherish and seek. If you've experienced bad authority, do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you're angry about government overreach or about poor spiritual leadership in a church, have you had harsh, difficult parents, you have a horrible husband, do not say authority and submission are evil things. They are good, beautiful things. Wicked authority is the problem, not authority. When the Titanic sunk, 75% of those who died, sorry, 75% of the women on board survived. When the Titanic went down, 75% of the women on board survived. 20% of the men did. Why did that happen? Because the men on board made sure the women got to the lifeboats first. They knew what biblical masculinity looks like. For a husband, it looks like dying. No one, no one complains about that gender gap, right? 75% of women survive, 20% men. We say, that is beautiful. And I pray, church, that we would be a church where the beauty of authority and submission like that is very, very clear. And I pray, final application, we would not be a church that twists and misapplies authority and submission to create terrible destruction. There's a reason these are swear words today, and there are, some of them are good reasons. There have been horrible authorities in the world. They still exist today. They have been twisted. But let's be a church that celebrates the beauty and rejects the abuses. Let me pray. We have a few minutes for questions. God, you are good, and we want to submit to you. We do not, God, on our own know how to do these things that you ask of us. Father, I pray that those with authority would feel the burden 
the weight of what it means that they will one day answer to God. And those in submission would also feel the weight that they will one day answer to God and they are submitting to him first and foremost. Help us, God, to be a church that sees the beauty in these things and that honors you by obeying your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.